0: Today's episode is sponsored by Wefty. Wefty started in a garage on a 3D printer and has grown to include patterns, products, and workshops. Wefty's first product, the Wefty Needle, is the only needle made by a weaver designed specifically for use with fabric strips and bias strips. Create beautiful woven projects with quilting cottons. Curious? Check out Wefty Needle on Instagram to see what it's all about. Thank you so much, Wefty. And now here's the show. Welcome to episode 126 of the Walshy Naps podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Today, we're talking about running an online and and brick-and-mortar fabric shop with my guest, Kelly Stevens. After finishing graduate school and some years working in higher education administration, Kelly rediscovered an early love of textiles and design in the late 1990s. Upon discovering Japanese craft books and modern Japanese fabrics, an obsession was born that later turned into the concept for Super Buzzy. The shop opened online in 2006 and then moved to a flagship storefront located in Ventura, California in 2011. Kelly Stevens, welcome.
1: Thank you, Abby. Thanks so much for having me today.
0: I am so excited to talk to you. I was an early super buzzy fan and customer and have <laughs> always you. yeah, I've always wanted to get the story of the store and learn more about its genesis and its development over time and it's really longevity because it's still around over all (laughs) of these years. And I know it's kind of morphed and changed. Um, So I'm excited to hear um, your journey through all of that. Um, So yeah, so let's begin with sort of your early um, history and talk a little bit about um, sort of how you got to, to where you are now. So where did you grow up?
1: I grew up all over California. My mother kind of had a bit of wanderlust. So we moved for most of my life every couple of years, but mostly it was in California. And then uh, I lived in Mexico City for about three and a half years.
0: Oh, wow. That's interesting. So um, what what brought you guys to Mexico City?
1: Um, Well, that You know, that question is probably mostly for my mom. Um, She found she's an English teacher, a high school English teacher. And uh, it took her some time, I think, to find a place where she felt comfortable and at home. And my parents uh, also divorced when I was three. So that was the first time we lived in Mexico when I was three years old. Around the time of the divorce, we were there for about six months and then um, came back to California for a couple of years. And then she got a job at the American School in Mexico City. And so we moved back there when I was about six and lived there for another couple of years at that point. Okay. I see.
0: Oh, neat. (laughs) So you kind of had like a a cross-cultural experience growing up because you lived both in the United States and as well as in Mexico.
1: Yeah. Yeah. When we moved back to California after being in Mexico, I remember identifying more as a as a young Mexican girl than as a, an American girl. And, and that was a little strange because I'm very fair with blue eyes and I had blonde hair at the time. So not everybody kind of recognized me in the same way that I felt.
0: <laughs> uh-huh, that's interesting though, because you, I mean, you know, you did have like a, a cultural uh, difference though, even from the beginning, um, even if, if it, it, from the inside, even if not on the outside. Right, uh-huh. right. Okay, cool. Um, yeah. And what? So, so you sort of traveled around um, a little bit. Were you very crafty? Were you like making things? Were you interested in art?
1: I I loved art, but never really uh, could tell my hands to do what my brain was seeing. I'm still working on that. So I never had any real affinity for drawing or painting. Um, I enjoyed it. I did a lot of uh, pottery in high school. I um, did a lot of throwing on the wheel and things like that. Um, but again, I think I was just very passable at those things. Uh, I did have an interest in textiles and fashion. And uh, when I was getting ready to graduate from high school, I had applied to conventional universities and then also to the FIDM, the Fashion Institute of Design and Merchandising in San Francisco. So I always look back at that and realize that I had that interest in fabric and fashion and textiles early on and just kind of it took me a little journey to, I guess, get back to that. It's
0: mm-hmm. sometimes it's hard to understand like what it is that you could do with an interest like that, you know? Right. And it's like, you might like it, but it's like, what do I do now? <laughs> so, exactly. Okay. So where did you end up going for college?
1: So I ended up trying to be a bit more practical and went to Berkeley for my undergraduate uh, school. I um, ultimately ended up uh, finishing with a major in physical anthropology and then went on to graduate school uh, in New York at SUNY Stony Brook.
0: Okay. And I hear that while you were at Berkeley, you were Jen Hewitt's RA when she was a sophomore. <laughs> <laughs> she told me that yeah. the other day.
1: <laughs> yeah. It's it's one of those when worlds collide moments um, of all the people in my current kind of fabric quilt world. Jen has known me the longest. Yeah, I, I was, I um, can't remember, a year or two older than Jen. And uh, I was an RA at the all-female dormitory my senior year at Berkeley. And Jen was one of my residents. She was just uh, right next door, actually. So we've known each other a long time. And then we reconnected. I believe at a renegade craft show in San Francisco some years ago. And it was really funny to see that we were both kind of converging on this craft world after all those years of doing other things.
0: <laughs> yeah, that is funny. And, um, just so people know, like John, Hewitt was a past guest on the and well apps podcast and is now a printmaker, um, and author and, um, very involved in sort of the fabric world and cotton and steel designer, et cetera. So, um, right. yeah, very much involved in the same, in the same, uh, circles in the same world. So that is funny. Um, okay. So you were a physical anthropology major and I'm not, I know what anthropology is, um, but I'm not 100% sure I know what physical anthropology is. So can you explain a little bit what that is?
1: Sure, to the best of my ability. (laughs) Just just
0: briefly summarize.
1: Yeah, yeah. So physical anthropology is generally dealing um, with uh, the more biological and ecological side of anthropology. So that would be like Um, fossil remains of humans and human ancestors. It would also deal with primatology with a study of living and uh, recently extinct primates. So that's kind of where physical anthropology lies. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. That's pretty cool. Interesting. All right.
0: And so then you moved to New York and what were you doing in graduate school?
1: So I, um, I, was a, I focused on primatology, studying living primates, and so I did a, a field study in Madagascar of lemurs, and then my, my dissertation work was on the pygmy chimpanzee, uh, which is located in Zaire, or what was Zaire, what is now the Democratic Republic of Congo.
0: Okay, so do people often be like, Jane Goodall? <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yeah, yeah, I think that's the closest, uh, you know, sort of celebrity that people can relate to in that field. Okay,
0: but that's actually probably not exactly right. Am I right? Like, not really.
1: Well, it is and it isn't. I mean, Jane is amazing, and she's um, she did it through a non-academic route. She was more of a a social activist and an animal activist. And so she went into primatology, um, not really through the university and research route, but ultimately, you know, she ended up contributing hugely to the field. Um, So her, I guess her path was different, but her celebrity has really helped the field and, you know, bring donors to it and bring attention to the causes and Uh, issues that are there in in Africa and, and South and Central America that relate to living primates. So I think she's great for our field. She brings a lot of focus to it.
0: Okay. I see. All right. Yeah. So she, she helps people like me understand it from sort of a totally, completely outsider perspective. Right. Um, right. right. Okay. Right. <laughs> right. All right. So, so you got to through this though, go to some pretty fantastical places, some places that were really places maybe you would not have been able to go to, um, Absolutely. otherwise. So Madagascar and, and Zaire, that's really um, that's really fantastic and and so, but you were there um studying primates. So how did that <laughs> okay, like I just feel like, wow, that's super <laughs> cool and must have been really engrossing and a, but also a hundred percent different from what you're doing now. So was Absolutely. there was there like a point there where you were like, okay, this is super interesting, but maybe not for me or what happened?
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a strange route. Um, well, at, when I was in Zaire doing my graduate work, um, there was a, some of you may remember if you follow African uh, news, that there was a big uh, revolution happening along the Zaire and Rwanda border. And so there was a lot of conflict and and a genocide happening, and it was really not safe. And so most of us expats or expatriates were recommended to, recommended to leave the country for our safety. And so realizing that and also being in a field that is incredibly competitive for funding and um you know, where I I like to think of myself more as a collaborator. And in that field, the money is so tight for research. You end up competing with the very people who I thought I should be collaborating with and cooperating with. I just had second thoughts about staying in academia. And I had also fallen in love, (laughs) which is a part of that story, um, with my now husband. He was a grad student in physics at the same university. And he had uh, finished his PhD and moved to Colorado where he was working on his postdoc and so it kind of there were a lot of factors that made me realize that maybe sticking with academia was not the right path for having a family and and uh, a stable lifestyle and so that led me to work in higher administration higher education administration for a bit sometime at Colorado State University while we were there. And then we moved back to California where he had a job offer. And I worked for the University of California Office of the President for a time there. And um, I guess to try and shorten this uh, weird path, ultimately, I wasn't really satisfied with my positions in higher ed administration. There was still a lot of ego and um, a lot of academics, just jockeying for position. And so I started taking some design classes uh, at uh, Santa Barbara City College in the evenings. And I had also done textile science and um, curated the Historic Textile Museum at Colorado State University, just because that was fun for me. So I was always taking classes all along that sort of related to textiles and fiber and fashion. And so around that time, I discovered Japanese fabrics and uh, and the Japanese craft books, which I thought were incredible. It really opened my eyes to a whole new side of things. And that's ultimately, I think, where the seed for Super Buzzy was uh, was planted. <laughs>
0: okay, so I want to unpack that a little bit. So, and what around what year was this? So, you were back in um, in California where he had the job offer, and and you were sort of taking these design classes. And and around what year was this? Like the early two thousands or mid two thousands?
1: Yeah, we moved. We got married and moved to California in nineteen ninety eight. Oh, okay. And and um, lived in near Santa Barbara in Goleta for a few years. And um, yeah, so that's when I started taking those. Des- probably, probably around 2000 when I started taking the design classes. It took me a couple years before I decided my job wasn't really thrilling me. <laughs> right,
0: right, yeah. As I, as it can, of course. Um, yeah. Okay. All right. So so you're taking these classes, and um, and it's interesting, like this discovery of Japanese fabrics. So um, was it what through one of those classes where you like opened a book and saw a Japanese fabrics, or was it? through like one of the, the teachers of one of the classes or through a student or how did you first discover them and, and which Japanese fabrics? Because of course there's all kinds of Japanese fabrics. There's right. like kimono fabric and, you know, there's ancient Japanese fabrics. I mean, there's, there's a whole, you know, set of them, but I'm getting the feeling that it was more of like the modern Japanese fabrics that were being produced today that kind of resonated with you, but maybe I'm wrong. So tell me a little bit more about that part of it.
1: Okay. Yeah. So I, um, around the time around that time when I was taking classes I also started a craft blog and this is was kind of a I don't know I think of it as like the golden age of craft blogs before um, we were all so savvy about beautiful photography and staging projects perfectly it was you know a very organic time in craft blogging what was and your what was your blog called my blog was called buzzville okay <laughs> and um So I, through the blog land and interacting with other craft bloggers at the time, I would see photos of, uh, Japanese fabrics. And, and by those, the ones that were really calling to me were the more modern Japanese fabrics. I had seen more traditional prints with the, the cranes and, you know, traditional motifs on them. And, but it was really these, these modern fabrics, uh, that called to me something I had never seen before. And that's how I started seeing it. And at the time, really nobody, none of the stores in the U.S. were carrying those. Uh, it seemed like people were getting their hands on them because they either traveled to Japan themselves and hand carried them back. Or maybe they were doing a swap with somebody in Japan and they would get this package of amazing little goodies, stationery and bento things and fabrics and, and craft books and is like, wow, how do I get my hands on that amazing stuff?
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I so I uh, I started my blog in 2005, and I just remember we would order the craft books from um, Amazon Japan, like that's right, you'd, and you have to order them by ISBN <laughs> number because you couldn't, mm-hmm. you know, read the Japanese characters, and so you would get like the number and you would just type the number in and get it, and you get like Cotton Friend or you know, these books that exactly. would come, and um, and they it was just like the, this amazing thing, and um, these amazing. Amazing Japanese fabrics, and I actually ordered. But I, this is jumping ahead a little bit, but when you open super, super Buzzy, I ordered Japanese fabrics from you that I still have. Like hoard, <laughs> like I hoarded them away. You know, they were like this precious commodity that you would like <laughs> never cut because they were so. You know, they it was like they it was like gold. You know, they were yeah. like this precious thing. And um, but but when those books first became available, it was like so exciting and they looked like nothing else that you could find in the United States right. um it's hard to remember because i feel like that sort of zaka like look has become so ubiquitous now but um but in the early 2000s it really i mean as far as i you know i was aware it, w- it was not something that was at all available
1: yeah exactly it looked so new and so fresh and just the style of the photographs, how they would stage them. It was so clean and simple and elegant. And it really, really resonated with me with my design aesthetic. Yeah.
0: Okay. So you started to see these on craft blogs and then sort of got your hands on a little bit of them. Um, But okay. So I did too, but then I didn't go and like open a store, (laughs) (laughs) but you did. So so how did you decide like, this is it for me? I'm going to go do this.
1: Well, you know, so there was some, as I had mentioned, some dissatisfaction with my job and I was taking these night classes and, and communicating a lot with various people in the craft blog world. And I think I just made a flip remark. I can't remember if it was on my own blog or as a comment to somebody else's at some point, I said something like, wow, you know, we should really open up a store that is importing these goods. And, um, So then I got a direct email back from another craft blogger who said, yeah, let's do this. (laughs) And so it was really, and this is, you know, you have to remember again, like putting it in the, in the context of the time, this is before Etsy. And so there really wasn't a marketplace like that either. So So it it really had to be kind of a DIY, build your own website and, you know, go from there. Shopify didn't exist. All these kind of plug and play things were not around. So it was kind of a different climate to open up a business at that time.
0: Yeah, it was really, really hard to build an e-commerce storefront. Yeah. Um, I mean, you had to build it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it was not so easy like it is now. I mean, when Etsy started, I was like, "Wow, check it out! I could sell something online now." Because before that, I was like, "There's no way, yeah, I can't yeah. do. Th- I just like I can't do this." Um, okay, all right. So, so watch what you ask for. This person was like, <laughs> "Okay, sure, let's do it." Um, yeah. But you know, you don't speak Japanese. I'm assuming, no. um, or read Japanese, or or I write do not. Japanese. So again, beyond not knowing how to code and, and you don't know how to I mean you're not a computer science major no, or, right I'm so not. <laughs> okay so there, there's those two language barriers right there. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the, you, you seem kind of unstoppable. so um, so that's two things that were hard. Um, so uh, so did you need to then like go to Japan or how did you source all of this stuff? I'd like to take a minute now to talk about our sponsor, Wefty. Wefty started in a garage on a 3D printer and has grown to include patterns, products, and workshops. Wefty's first product, the Wefty needle, is the only needle made by a weaver designed specifically for use with fabric strips and bias strips. The Wefty has a tab at the end for looping the end of the strip, much like the eye of a needle, securing it in place as you weave it's flat construction ensures that the wefty will glide through your project without disturbing the design all while holding and pulling the fabric strip technically neatly behind it. The grooves on the top allow you to choose how to move it through your project. You can grip the wefty by the sides or push it from the top using just your finger. Wefty also developed the easy miter method. With the easy miter, you use less fabric to get a mitered finish, you highlight your favorite charm pack, choose whether or not to use batting, finish with hand applique or decorative machine stitches, and make five and a half inch finished raw edge blocks or five inch finished hemmed blocks. The Easy Miter is a heavy gauge acrylic template that comes with instructions and fussy cutting guides. Learn more about all of this at weftyneedle.com. The wefty was invented by Tara J. Curtis, who travels the earth teaching humans how to sew and weave with quilting cottons as an expert fabric weaver and inventor of the wefty needle. She can answer any questions while leading students through every step of the process. Tara spent most of her life as a therapist and prevention outreach educator. So her style of instruction is patient and affirming with an emphasis on using humor to connect. There's no room for stress when it comes to working with fabric. If your guild or retreat is interested in having Tara teach, email her at weftyneedle at gmail.com and wefty is spelled W-E-F-T-Y, weftyneedle at gmail.com for pricing information. Thank you so much Tara and Wefty and now back to my conversation with Kelly.
1: Yeah. So, so the woman I spoke of who was my early business partner, she is Japanese American and had grown up in her household speaking Japanese. So that was one plus. (laughs) And she had some friends who um, traveled to Japan fairly regularly. And so once we got kind of the idea behind SuperBuzzy grounded and, and started those friends of hers actually did a shopping trip for us because they were going to be in Japan. And we kind of said, look for really cool, cute, modern stuff. And they shipped it to us. So that was our first, uh, super busy inventory was hand selected by some friends of my former business partner. And, um, then we, uh, the website was launched on August 21st, 2006. And those of you like you, Abby, who have been there from the beginning or or way back when will remember it looked very different than it does now um, because I'm not a computer programmer. <laughs> and so, yeah, we kind of did our best with what we had. And I think it worked at the time. Um, and, and that me, was, I that remember
0: was- like the pictures were small. I, I do yes. remember that. Yeah.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Things have changed so much in web design and, and capabilities. Um, and so then shortly thereafter, then I, we took a trip, the two of us did go to Japan and that was my first time in Japan and, uh, did our own buying trip. And that's where we really sat down and, and established relationships with the big mills in Japan. So, um, so that we could, do business more of the Japanese way and actually do a proper wholesale relationship with them. And doing business in Japan is so different than the relationship in business in the United States. So that was a whole learning curve. So tell, us, tell
0: us a little bit about that trip and a little bit about the differences. Like, What struck you most when you were there that first time about um, the way business is done and what you saw when you were there?
1: Yeah, Um, Japan is just an amazing place. I had never, although I had traveled a lot, I had never really had a pull to go to Asia in general. And uh, I think Japan really opened my eyes a lot. The thing that still strikes me when I go that really resonates with me is just this incredible contrast between the super modern and high tech and cutting edge technology and, and life solutions, um, contrasted directly against incredibly old and ancient traditions, just side by side. And I love that. I love that you can be on the, the bullet train, the Shinkansen going, you know, several hundred miles per hour through the Japanese countryside and a sweet woman in a kimono walks down the aisles bows as she enters the train to offer you a beverage or a bento box, uh, lunch. And it's things like that, that just, I just love it. I just find it so fascinating. <laughs> um, but, uh, as far as business in Japan goes, it's, uh, unlike in the United States, it's, it's a very face to face focused, very personal relationship focused, and the language that is used is also very important. So while I can conduct business with other American companies fairly informally via email and, um, and quick phone calls and generally speak much like I'm speaking to you now, in Japan there's a whole sort of business Japanese language that is much more formal and um, I can't even begin to pretend I understand it, only understand it enough to know that I need a professional with me to do that sort of conversing because it could easily go somewhere that might be offensive to my business contacts or inappropriate. And I would never, ever want to do that. So it's it's very, very much based on those personal relationships, face-to-face uh, relationships, and is also very formal at the same time. And then there's also the dynamic of me being a westerner and female at the same time in a in a society that is still fairly patriarchal so that adds kind of another element of uh interest, I guess. (laughs) Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's a lot, a lot to take
0: in, a lot to learn and understand. So, um, so did you end up hiring somebody to help you like a person who could be almost an intermediary or somebody who could sort of, um, yeah, like a, a person who could help to both translate and go between and, um, and just smooth things over for you and help you to understand. Okay.
1: Yeah. So what happened is that early on, I went to my, my first fabric trade show. It's the international textile show, which was held in Las Vegas. And while there I developed what is still just the most amazing relationship with one of my distributors, um, seven islands fabrics. And I've worked with them from the beginning and they're like family to me. And so the owner of seven islands hero, uh, has always been with me on the trips that I've taken to Japan. And he's a native Japanese speaker and just a wonderful human being. And so he's always been there to guide me, gently nudge me (laughs) into proper, um, proper conversation topics and, you know, what is done and what isn't done at either a lunch or a f- more formal meeting, those sorts of things. And then he'll always kind of take my questions and frame them appropriately and deliver them appropriately to the, the mill representatives.
0: I see. So he lives in Japan because Seven Islands is a Japanese distributor, correct?
1: Well, no, he lives in Torrance, California. Oh, so he's Yeah, so Seven Islands Fabrics is based in Torrance, and they do uh, import and export both directions. So they'll bring in fabrics from the Japanese mills into the United States, and they'll also export fabrics from Moda and Robert Kaufman and those uh, U.S. brands into Japan. So they, they do import, export both directions.
0: Okay, so when you go to Japan, though, he just goes, does he like go just with you, or is he there for other business and he just sort of makes it work?
1: Yeah, I think he makes it work. <laughs> he's very gracious to let me tag along and do meetings with him. And I think he's also at the same time conducting business for for his company. I see. Okay. So yeah. he
0: so he just, make, he like sort of adds you into his calendar. Um, right. And then, so that way you sort of become one of his many um, sort of client meetings um, while he's in Japan for for other things. Okay. Um, yeah. and, and facilitates that. I see. Okay. And do you know if there are other similar shows? shops like Super Buzzy that do specialize in Japanese import fabrics the the way that you do in the United States. I'm just trying to think because I'm not sure that there are comparable shops, but maybe there are and I just don't know of them.
1: Well, yeah, things have really changed. Back back when we first opened in two thousand six, as I recall, and and certainly there may have been others out there that I wasn't aware of. But as I recall, it was uh, Super Buzzy and Repro Depot, oh, yeah. I, I missed dearly. Oh
0: pretty, I remember when they went out of business.
1: Oh my god! Yeah. So Repro and, and Depot. Pearl, yeah, and Pearl Soho. I right. think all three of us kind of latched on to this you know amazingness of Japanese fabrics at around the same time. And so at that time I remember the three of us were doing that And certainly Pearl patchwork still does and there are other fantastic stores that carry Japanese fabrics um, that I think, that aesthetic has, you know, become more popular. It took some time for it to catch on and with a more wide audience, but certainly other stores carry it. I think that we may have one of the deeper selections of Japanese fabrics still. Um, but certainly I see, uh, fabrics like Nani Iro, uh, the, that collection. I see it a lot of places. I see a Chino by Atsuko Furuya. I see her fabrics at a lot of places, So, um, yeah, so I don't think we're the only ones by any means. I think, uh, since it was sort of our, our, beginning was based in that we maybe go a little deeper and broader than right. other stores.
0: Okay. Yeah. No, that makes sense. Okay. So, um, and the other thing that I think is interesting too, going back to sort of the two different languages that you had to learn is that you were selling this fabric online and this opened in August of 2006, you said, and, mm-hmm. um, and, you know, and, and Etsy had just opened the prior year. Um, and so, you know, this was still a fairly Early e-commerce um, shop, and right. people. Um, so it's again hard to believe, but people were at that time hesitant to put their credit card information online. You know, um, and there was, was still that feeling of like, um, mm, do I really want to? Do I really want to enter these numbers online and buy something online? Is that trustworthy? You know. Um, yeah. So and and you didn't have brick and mortar. You were just selling online, and so um, so this was a, really an early you know buy, and also people. The, the idea of like buying fabric when you couldn't feel it, you know, you couldn't right. see it, you couldn't touch it, you couldn't see the scale, um, you couldn't feel the, the weave of the fabric, the hand of the fabric, um, you know, that was sort of alien or somewhat different than, than what people were used to. So was that hard to overcome as well?
1: Um, I think, you know, we started so small in the beginning with literally just, you know, I don't know. I, I wish I had the count originally, but you know, probably 50 bolts. We were very small and we had that network of those craft bloggers out there who kind of knew what we were up to because they had seen us talking about it and sharing what was coming. And so initially, I think there was just that trust because we had that personal relationship through our craft blogs, as personal as that can be. And so and and since we also didn't have that much inventory. We would get it in and it would just sell out because those people trusted us they maybe had some prior experience with japanese fabric and knew the quality was going to be there that it wasn't a quality issue So I'd say in the beginning, that wasn't so much of a problem. I think maybe that happened more as time went on and as the business grew and we started getting more customers. Um, We've always tried to be very focused on customers. And so we would always say, you know, like, shoot us an email and we'll will, um, help you match those fabrics or help you help to describe the, the texture of it. And so we've tried to do that all along, but it is hard online. Uh, it's a different shopping experience, but I do think that over time, once someone has familiarized themselves with what Japanese fabrics are like, they start to trust it. They, they know what that cotton linen, um, the fabric feels like that achino kind of weight, that bottom weight. They know what double gauze is now and what to expect from it. So there's, um, I guess, there's a learning process for the customer as well. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I mean, you had something too that was—it's um, was just so rare as well. You know that you couldn't really couldn't source anywhere else, and so right. um, that made it something that people really could only turn to you to get. Um, which, right, right, was helpful in the beginning, probably. Um, yeah. All right. So, so you had this store for some time, and it sounds like um, the business partnership at a certain point um, it didn't work out, and so you ended up going it alone. Is that correct?
1: Yeah. Yeah. About, I'd say approximately a year in, we just decided to go our separate ways, and so I purchased her share of the business and and assumed. Ownership of the whole kit and caboodle for better or for worse. <laughs> okay.
0: And so you've had yeah. it. Yeah. You've had it yourself um, since then. And, right. um, okay. And so you ran it online for some time. It was purely online. Is that right? Until 2011 when you decided to open the storefront?
1: Right. Yeah. We did. There were a few people who knew where our warehouse was. And we would say, you know, you can stop in and see things in person. Um, And so we did have occasional walk-in customers. We even had some uh, university groups, sewing groups and things come to the warehouse and visit, but it was pretty infrequent. And the beauty of that is that it would be kind of, uh, according to my schedule, you know, we didn't have, set hours like a storefront would have to have. So that was uh, nice. I also had a toddler at the time. So, you know, having the toddler and the warehouse and those flexible hours was really nice so that I could go in and fill orders when it was convenient t- for me to do so.
0: Okay. But you did move it out of your home. I mean, I'm assuming the very beginning was probably in your home.
1: Um, not not my home. It was never, <laughs> my, okay. Yeah, it was never in my home. Um, my my business partner early on did have for, gosh, I'm going to be really fuzzy on the timeline here, maybe the first four to six months she had stock in her home. And then it was really amazing how quickly the buzz, so to speak, <laughs> grew about super buzzy. And so then we quickly moved into a, a warehouse to store everything and how did you come up with, by the way, with that name, Super Buzzy? Yeah, so it was uh, actually a, a mixing of our two craft blog names. As I mentioned, mine was Buzzville, and hers was Super Eggplant. And so we took the two names and came up with Super Buzzy um, as a melding of the two craft blog names. And then the bee kind of came from there as our as our logo and mascot. Got
0: it. Okay. I also wanted to just say, like, I love the names of these early craft blogs before everybody felt <laughs> like their name needed to be their brand. And it had to be so thoughtful about like, you know what I mean? Like all right. of the business. I don't know. Yeah. It just yeah. got so professionalized as time went by. But in the beginning, it was so fun. And <laughs> it was. those were the yeah. days. But anyway, um, okay, got it. So, um, So you had
1: this warehouse and you had some employees helping you I did. Um, usually it was maybe just one person part-time helping me out. Um, and then things kind of grew organically for the longest time. I was still working, uh, at other, another job. And so super buzzy was part-time. And then at some point that shift just kind of happened where it was time to quit the day job and, and do super buzzy full-time, um so yeah so a lot of order fulfillment I would get help with that but typically it was just one other person
0: Okay. And so then you decided to um, open up this storefront. Um, And that's a pretty big commitment because once you have a storefront, you actually have to be in the store (laughs) (laughs) during the time that the store is open, or you have to have (laughs) an employee there and, you know, you have to supervise this employee or, you know, I mean, it's a pretty big deal to open a storefront. Um, And, you know, you have to merchandise that and they, it's just a lot, you know, it's a lot to do. Different Kinds of insurance and all the rest. Exactly. Um, yeah, it's a lot to take care of. Um, so, uh, was there an, a certain pivot point where you were like, "Hey, I, I do want to do this"? Um, was there, or was it just like a piece of real estate came on the market, and you're like, oh, that would be perfect for me"? Or, or what, what caused <laughs> that change?
1: Yeah. Well, I think I think all along I had always always had this pie in the sky vision fantasy of a. Beautiful, creative space filled with color and just amazing fabrics that people would walk into and feel inspired to create. And so, so perhaps um, that pie in the sky vision helped drive the opening of the storefront more than the financial uh, situation at the time. But this was just post the big crash. Uh, the financial crisis, and things were really tough for an online business, especially one that is doing something that's not, uh, you know, a life necessity—selling gasoline or milk or eggs or something like that. It's a kind of a luxury item; it's a higher-end good, and so things were really tough. And and at the same time that the crash was happening, more and more online fabric stores were cropping up, and so um, there was a lot more competition online for. For customers, and um, then I guess the third part of that is that uh, in Ventura, there really wasn't where I where we live and are based. There wasn't really a fabric store that was catering to a modern sewer, and the Modern Quilt Guild, of course, was you know sort of being. Uh, was growing at this time. And so more and more people were becoming aware of modern fabrics and modern quilting and modern sewing in general. So I think all of those factors kind of contributed to me just having itchy feet and wanting to open the storefront um, in the hopes that if we could perhaps cater to a local community more effectively than we could through our warehouse, that maybe that would help boost our sales that we were losing in the online battle for customers so interesting because I feel like often people
0: go the other way, you know, they feel yep. like they need to go online in order to find new customers, But you sort of right. decided to go the other way. Okay. So you open the storefront in um, Ventura, which is actually where Craftcation, by the way, is every year. Yes. Um, so I wonder, I mean, I'm, I'm, betting that, that, um, the craftcation crowd comes to, to see you, um, which must be nice as well. Yeah. Um, yeah, (laughs) yeah, that craftcation is pretty awesome. Um, so, um, so did, did you feel like that it, that it worked? I mean, that, you know, you're taking that bet. Um, so, so you opened the store and, um, did you feel like that, that, that plan of being able to connect with, with people sort of the modern, you know, quilters and, Local people and finding a new customer base—that that that plan did indeed work.
1: I do. I do think it has. Um- In fact, you know, I'd say more of our business now is with our local customers than is online, which always really surprises me. Um, And maybe it's just because I'm not doing things right. But I always think, how can a relatively small town like Ventura compete with the world at large? But for whatever reason, either my own uh, failures or just the support of our local community, we have just the greatest group of people here in town who support us and... um, at the same time when we opened the the storefront, we also broadened our inventory um, because I knew that not everybody was looking for those really high-end fabrics from Japan. And so we that was when we first started uh, open the the doors, so to speak, to American branded goods. And so we started carrying U.S. brands um, from Robert Kaufman, Alexander Henry, Michael Miller, those those sorts of companies. Right. And um, and yeah. And, you know,
0: I, I did a piece actually this year about Row by Row, which is, you know, a. Um uh, uh, shop hop that quilt quilt shops can take part in, for example. And um and I know you you participated in row by row. You designed a beautiful yeah. row. Yeah, um, Thank you. Yeah, I loved your row. Actually, it was my like I, I think it actually um was my favorite one of, of the ones that oh. I ran. I did like a a thing about like modern rows because um, yes. just rounding them up and, um, and taking a look at all the modern ones and it was just super beautiful. Um, so just sort of deciding to kind of participate in kind of the, the, the U S based scene um, a little bit.
1: Right. Mm-hmm. Right. And we also participate in a shop hop or shop tours. We like to call it a central coast. So we, so I do that once a year it happens in June each year and an association with shops that go up and down the central coast of California and I think that's really helped to um, expose people to what we're doing. And maybe the Japanese fabrics aren't for everyone, but we also have, you know, an amazing selection of Kona solids and and beautiful polka dots. So <laughs> there's something for everyone I always feel like. Yeah. And I know you
0: have, um, you've got like a trunk show up now. I saw like um, on your Instagram, some of the uh, beautiful quilts, um, Sam Hunter's like Lisa Congdon quilt is up in the shop. I don't know if it's still there, but it was up recently. Yes. Yeah. So some some really beautiful modern quilts up um, to draw people in as well. Yeah. Um, So, and I know that you were at Spring Quilt Market in Portland. I saw some pictures of you there. Um, Mm -hmm. I wasn't there, but I um, was watching on Instagram like everybody else. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So I'm wondering, do you typically go to Quilt Market?
1: It had been a while since I had been. I felt like it was time. I always want to go, but being a mom and running a small business, it's often challenging to legitimize going, you know, to a a trade show when I can easily see things online. But I, I thought it was time and it reminded me of how important it is to be there in person and and see everyone and get that energy and that inspiration in person. Yeah, no, I know the, those in-person connections
0: are really wonderful. And when I go, I always feel that same way too. But something that I've been thinking a lot about recently, and I just wondered if you had any thoughts about is, um, since you do sell online and in person, and I know you said mm-hmm. that your in-person sales are at this point are higher than your online sales, but still Mm -hmm. sort of still thinking about this from the online perspective. um, Mm -hmm. Something I've been thinking about is um, how Quilt Market could serve online shops Um, because I feel like a lot of the programming that they have at Quilt Market is really geared toward a brick and mortar shop. And that's super important, obviously, and has historically been really the only kind of shop that existed. Um, Mm -hmm. But as we sort of enter the next age of retail, I think, you know, clearly, as you said earlier, there's lots and lots of online shops. And one of the reasons you opened a brick and mortar shop was because there was so much online competition, um, which means that there are tons of online shops and probably only going to be more as the future continue, you know, go into the future. Um, Mm -hmm. So I'm just thinking about like the kinds of things that quilt market could provide that would help online shop owners to do their job better. Um, And I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but um, you know, online shop owners have somewhat different needs than right. brick and mortar shop owners. And since your genesis was as an online shop owner before you opened a brick and mortar store, you spent so many years in just that role. I just mm-hmm. wondered if you had any thoughts about that. Um, a lot of online shop owners right now don't seem to go to quilt market. And since quilt market attendance is declining, that would be a new audience for them that would bring new right. people to the show because, hey, here's a whole lot of people who sell quilting cotton who don't come now, but could come in the future. Right. So yeah, I just wondered if you had any thoughts about that?
1: It's an interesting question. I'm always thrown off by this, um, I think, forced dichotomy of shopping local and shopping online. And I think that may be part of the problem is just our language that we say if we're shopping local, that must mean we're walking or getting on our bike or getting in our car and driving somewhere in our neighborhood to shop. But um, I think that if we sort of recognize that a lot of these on online businesses are also local businesses, that maybe that changes the framework. I, I like to think of it as more of uh, like big box stores versus mom and pop owned businesses, I guess. So I feel like maybe that's a better, better distinction. Um, because we are a small business and we are local and we are also online. Um, so anyway, that may be an aside a bit, but, um, I think the things that help people, that help customers shop online, are the very same things that the shop owners would want. So things like um, really good quality, color matching, so that people can distinguish. Fabrics And how they're going to go together on a website and everybody's monitors different. And so is there some way that we can somehow standardize uh, color matching? I don't know. That's like maybe pie in the sky because mm. all the companies have their own image management. And I know they'll provide images um, for us to use but I don't know how well calibrated their color is compared to the other mill next to them. So for instance, we always scan all of our fabrics in-house on the same scanner calibrated to the same settings so that each fabric, no matter which company it comes from is going to be represented in the same way. That still doesn't help the the customer at home, you know, making sure their monitor is calibrated, but at least if it looks the same <laughs> from one to the next, it should match. Um, I think the pattern support has been great uh, in terms of them offering downloadable patterns that are supporting the the fabric lines. Um, I think that helps a lot of people envision how to use the fabrics online, which is harder because you're just looking at a little thumbnail as opposed to being able to spread a bolt out in a store. Mm-hmm. So, so seeing, oh, here's a pattern and that shows me how the scale of these prints will all work together and how I can use them, how those colors work together, that sort of thing. So I think those online patterns, whether they're free or not, I that's a whole other debate, but having patterns available for those fabric lines, I think is really helpful for the online shopper.
0: Mm, That's important. I see what you're saying. Yeah. So that the people can see it sewn up because they can't spread the bolt out. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So those are two really important things. And um, yeah, I think that's really interesting. And those are are two really good points. And um, I, I think that there could be, yeah, just some different ways of Talking about online shops, I love what you said about the difference between big box or sort of super huge corporations versus mm-hmm. um, an independent or mom and pop owned store. Um, thinking about, instead of thinking about sort of local, um, <laughs> which is, yeah, those those words and the way that we talk about them are, are really important because um, it, it does create div- division where there doesn't need to be division.
1: Yeah, because I think a lot of us are struggling, you know, it's it's hard being a small business owner for a variety of reasons, but finding that customer is challenging. And so going online, I think, is a viable solution for many who have never been online. And that doesn't make them any less of a small business. It just means they're trying to reach out and connect with the people who are trying to find them. And, um, you know, mm-hmm. doing that, doing that online is much easier <laughs> to, to find those connections and and find the right person for the right product. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Okay. That's really helpful.
0: And I know that you also vend at QuiltCon.
1: Yes. Yeah. Yes, we do. And
0: how has that, how <laughs> has that been for you? That's um, a neat event as well. And I, I got to go to QuiltCon last year. which was a
1: lot of fun. Yeah. We love QuiltCon, um, I love all the people organizing QuiltCon. I think those are our people. We've vended at a number of different types of uh, fabric and craft shows over the years. And that's the one we keep going back to because those are our people. You know, the people at QuiltCon are the ones who love what we're doing. And so I think it's just a, a really nice show for us to be at. We we feel good there. We feel like we belong. We feel like we're well loved. And do <laughs> Which you, is really nice. Do you bring the Japanese
0: fabrics there? Are you bringing some specialty things there?
1: Yeah, absolutely. We bring our Japanese fabrics. We bring the Japanese books and magazines and notions and as well as, you know, other special, exciting new fabrics that have been launched around the time of the show, whatever, whatever the latest and greatest stuff is. Yeah.
0: Awesome. Okay, great. So people who are going to QuiltCon can look for Super Buzzy while they're there. Um, and then, um, I know you've done a lot of work, um, to help local Californians who have lost their homes from the recent fires and have been donating, I think, sewing machines to help them. And I wondered if you would talk a little bit about those efforts.
1: Oh, sure. Um, that's probably under the the umbrella of the Ventura Modern Quilt Guild. I'm a founding member of the guild and, um, have loved watching it grow over the past four years or so. And um, of course, since the Thomas fire hit our town so radically last December, uh, that was a, it really hit our community very hard. It was a, it was a really tough time. And so what do quilters do? (laughs) We make quilts. And so the um, effort was launched to get quilts made for everyone who had lost a home And as part of that, I also wanted to try and get the sewists who had lost everything in the fire back sewing as quickly as they were interested in doing. And so we put the call out for people, anyone who had an extra machine who they were no longer using or sewing supplies, fabrics, anything like that. Um, And and we were overwhelmed with the response for both, for both the quilt making effort and then the supplies. And we're still getting machines donated now. And I think a week before last, I gave away three machines to people who had lost everything in the fire. Um, It's a long process for them. I think now we're, they're starting to get a little more settled in whatever their uh, new home is. And so then they're finally able to think about sewing again and having a space set up for sewing. And so we're seeing that people coming in and finally ready to take yeah. a machine home. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
0: Gosh, that is a long process for sure. But um, yeah. but that does make a big difference. Does a person's feeling of well-being
1: yeah, well, it's, it's so important to have that, that therapy, that, that pastime that makes you feel good instead of just dealing with architects and builders and codes in the city. And, um, and I should say kudos to the Ventura Modern Quilt Guild because we've donated now over 600 quilts to uh, the community for people who lost their homes either in the fire or in the mudslides in Montecito. And we have, I think, about another 300 folks on our list that we're trying to finish quilts up for. And we're a very small guild. We're about 50 members, plus or minus. So I'm just so proud of our efforts to get all of that done for such a small group. Wow. That's great.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Okay, great. Kudos to you, for sure, and um, for helping to lead the way. Um, That's wonderful. So um, do you have anything interesting or new coming up for SuperBuzzy that you want to tell us about before we get to your recommendation list?
1: Gosh, every box that comes in the door is something new and interesting. I, bet. And I, I, bet. <laughs> <laughs> I I'm sort of like an, an ADD person with each box that comes in. I get really excited and it's my latest favorite thing. Yeah. Um, I don't know we just just this week got this past week got the tula pink de la luna line and so we have that up in front in the store and it's beautiful and amazing and the colors are magical so that woman is a color wizard she sure is yeah, yeah. absolutely <laughs> um that's cool so people who are local to ventura stop
0: in and take a look um all right and you have um a couple cool things to recommend it was funny when your recommendation list came into my inbox i was like yes Yes and yes. So <laughs> they're all like things that are on my recommendation list. Okay. So
1: the first one is a Kai seam remover. Yes. I love this new little tool. I discovered it just before Quilt Market. And uh, decided I was definitely going to go visit the Kai Scissor Company at Quilt Market to have it demoed and, and see it. And it kind of reminds me of an old safety razor that um, guys would use with the razor blade and then a guard. And so it, it, it's it got a long handle and then a blade with a guard on it. And so it doesn't look like a traditional seam ripper at all with the pointed tip and the blade in the crook of that Um And so you hold your fabric tight and you kind of use a little bit of a seesaw motion down between the two layers of fabric along the seam and it just rips them right out. And it's amazing. So it's my new best friend.
0: (laughs) So cool. When I was at Coal Market, I went to the Kai booth and had so much fun playing with all of the scissors and um, they're really impressive. It's a really cool company. Really is. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I, I'm like (laughs) a sucker for awesome scissors and um, yeah, they're really neat. So that's a cool tool. Um, And then the wool felt pressing mats, which I recommended in my newsletter a while ago. These are so cool.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I didn't think it was going to be all that. And then I got one for my classroom at the shop, uh, one of the large ones that the full ironing board and I just started using it and it was really incredible the speed at which it would it was working and then also the quality of the press it just made such nice crisp seams Uh, and so I was instantly converted so we actually got a whole bunch of those to demo at our shop tour that we had in June Um, because I think once people try it they really see how well it works. The, the real test is one woman said her biggest challenge was to remove that factory fold from the bolt when she was doing her projects. And so we pulled a remnant out and we said, okay, let's try this. Cause we hadn't yet done that. So we opened it up, put it on the fold and that crease, that factory crease was gone, not instantaneously, but very quickly. It did not take a lot of steam or heat to get that out with using that wall mat.
0: And this, so it like heats up basically from underneath as well. So your iron's hot on top and then the roll right. is hot underneath.
1: Right. So and it holds that heat in so yeah. well.
0: So it's almost like it's hot from both sides.
1: Exactly. And it's also thick enough that you can have it on any surface and you don't have to worry about damaging the surface. So to have a little one to take to a workshop or class is great because you can have it on the table right next to your sewing machine and not worry about damaging the table. So
0: cool. And it's simple. It's just the f- wool felt. It's yeah, like, th- it's I mean, it's really thick, but it's like yep. such a simple solution. It's like, why didn't anyone think of this before? This is Exactly. Just, it's <laughs> like, hello. It's just like yeah. the most simple thing. Okay. That's super
1: cool. And then yarn dyed fabrics. Yeah. I've just, I've just really been loving kind of the The texture and hand and pattern that is available through yarn dyed fabrics. Um, I think they've been around for so long in kind of more of the primitive quilts groups than they've been called homespuns. But I think that they're only maybe now within the past maybe year or two being presented and shown in more modern projects. And I just love the hand and the texture, and um, it strips down what's available in pattern, of course, but I find the patterns still very beautiful, the ecots or the plaids or, you know, big checks, buffalo checks, things like that. Um, They're so great for quilting, for garment sewing, for bags, you name it, and they're just a little more plush, a little thicker because that yarn dye process um, they're really wonderful. Those fabrics are
0: really beautiful. So Kelly, thank yeah. you so much for taking the time to be on the Walsh Genops podcast. It was really cool talking with you. Thank you, Abby. I so appreciate
1: you thinking of us.
0: <laughs> yeah, and I'd love to get out to Super Buzzy next time. Hopefully next time I'm at Craftcation, I'll come by and, and take a look and say hi definitely we'll show you around (laughs) all right awesome and you've been listening to the walshy naps podcast i'm abby glassenberg visit my blog walshy where you can sign up for my email newsletter to get the best in sewing blogging and small business delivered right to your inbox each week today's episode was sponsored by wefty wefty started in a garage on a 3d printer and has grown to include patterns products and workshops Wefty's first product, the Wefty Needle, is the only needle made by a weaver designed specifically for use with fabric strips and bias strips. Create beautiful woven projects with quilting cottons. Curious? Check out Wefty Needle on Instagram to see what it's all about. Thank you so much, Wefty. And if you enjoy the show, tell a friend about it. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.